Which is the bigger detriment to gut health? Is it the sugar or is it the fat? Oh, do I have to join one team? Is it one of these things? <laughs> Am I team sugar or team fat? Okay. Neither are health foods, okay? But if we're talking about the gut microbiome, that purified sugar never gets there, Chuck. It never gets to meet the gut microbiome because it's absorbed in the small bowel, gets in there, does all that damage, but it never gets to the large bowel, doesn't meet the gut microbiome. Whereas when that fat gets down to the gut microbiome, what it does is it promotes the growth of unhealthy bacteria. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us. This is episode number 37 of season four, number 232 overall. And today we are going to be having ourselves a plant-based diet revolution. We are going to be exploring all the ways that taking meat and dairy out of your diet can kick your health into overdrive. And a lot of that starts right in your gut. Because if your gut isn't happy, you're not going to be happy. And certainly, your health won't be happy either. So we will be chatting with a doctor whose new book offers a 28-day prescription for a happier gut and a healthier you. Our good friend, gastroenterologist Dr. Alan Desmond, the author of The Plant-Based Diet Revolution, joined me recently on The Exam Room Live, and he fielded so many questions from the roomies when we opened up the doctor's mailbag. Questions like, what are the top foods for a healthy gut? And how much less likely are you to be diagnosed with cancer, even if it runs in your family, but you start to eat a plant-based diet? And then a very interesting answer when someone wrote in to ask what eating fast food really does to your gut. You want to talk about going to nutrition school? Dr. Alan Desmond was a straight-up professor for this. You're going to love that answer. And we're also going to be hearing today whether fat or sugar is the bigger no-no when it comes to your gut. So we will be answering all of those questions as we embrace the plant-based diet revolution here on the exam room today. And we're excited to be giving away three copies of Dr. Desmond's new book. And stick around because we will be telling you how you can win toward the end of the show. But first... Let's raise our health IQs. The doctor's mailbag is open, and Dr. Desmond is filling your prescription for health. Let's go ahead and welcome in gastroenterologist and author extraordinaire, the man leading the plant-based diet revolution, Dr. Alan Desmond. Thanks so much for being here, my friend. Oh, Chuck, it's always a pleasure to spend time with you and your audience. And thanks for an amazing introduction. That may be the best introduction I've ever had. Well, you humble me, sir. And and I'll tell you, this is one of the most amazing books I've ever held in my hand. Honestly, I'm so excited that you put this out. You've been a regular on the show, bestowing so much information for so long. And now you finally got this in a nice hardback copy, man. I'm so excited for you to be leading this revolution. Oh, thanks, Chuck. That's really kind of you to say. I'm really glad you've got a copy of the book in your hand right now. It's going to be released uh, across the US on the 12th of this, excuse me, the 18th of this month, the 18th of May. And I'm so excited. I mean, the, the title of the book is The Plant-Based Diet Revolution, 28 Days to a Happier Gut and a Healthier You. And for me as a gastroenterologist, the starting point is gut health. It's got to be gut health. I mean, doctors have known about this since the 5th century BC, when Hippocrates taught his disciples that all disease begins in the gut. And if gut health is so crucial to human health and longevity, and it is, because the food we consume each day decides whether our body and our gut microbiome thrive 
and help us to optimize our health to do the exact opposite. Right now, Chuck, the US may be in a little bit of trouble because chronic digestive diseases are incredibly common in the States right now. So I'm really, really pleased that the book has been released in the US. Um, I, I genuinely, I think it's going to improve a lot of people's lives. I have no doubt about that. And here's some really exciting news as well. We are actually giving away three copies of the book right now. You can head over to the Physicians Committee's Instagram page for full details on that. We'll tell you a little bit more about the giveaway later in the show as well after we wrap up the doctor's mailbag. But let's go ahead and open up that doctor's mailbag. And I'm going to be selfish here, Dr. Desmond, and ask yeah, you the very first question. And it has to do with something that is in your book. Right up front, you talk about an experience that you had when you were just a young pup of a doctor, and you had this experience with a 19-year-old patient who had, I believe it was Crohn's disease, and that really opened your eye to that connection that you were talking about between gut health and what it is that we're eating. So talk to us a little bit about that experience and really how it helped to shape the views for you to put out this book. Absolutely. So Chuck, it takes a long time to become a doctor, right? I went into med school in 1995, graduated in 2001. And about 2004, I found myself in my first job on the gastroenterology rotation. So part of a team of doctors, nurses, dietitians, etc., looking after people who were hospitalized with serious gastrointestinal conditions. Now, I was one of the most junior members on the team, right? I was an intern. I was just a couple of years out of med school. But I remember this patient and he absolutely absolutely remains with me to this day. This young man, 19 years old, hospitalized with Crohn's disease, a form of inflammatory bowel disease, a condition which may affect up to 1% of the population in the US. Now, Crohn's disease causes sections of your bowel to become red and inflamed and damaged and dysfunctional, causing diarrhea, abdominal pain, anemia, and a whole host of other difficult problems. It's a difficult condition to live with. It's a difficult condition to treat and has become so common in the 21st century. This young man had been in hospital for about three days. There was a chance he was going to need the diseased part of his bowel removed. But in fact, after three days of high dose steroid medication to reduce the inflammation in his gut, he was starting to feel better. And we went to see him on the ward round. So I was there, the rest of the doctors, the rest of the team, and the attending or consultant, as we call them here in the, in the UK and Ireland, the senior doc was there and we were updating on the progress. We told this young man, that the signs were good, the inflammatory markers were getting better, the medication was working, we would be reducing the steroids and we were going to start him on a new biologic drug to further reduce the inflammation in his gut. And he turned to us, his doctors, the medical team, and asked a question. He asked, what about food? Is there anything I should be eating or avoiding? So he wants to know, just like every patient, are there any foods that I should eat to improve my prognosis with this condition? And the answer he was given by my boss was, it doesn't matter. Calories are just calories and calories are important for healing. Eat whatever you feel like. And this was a young man. My boss turned to his mother who was sitting at the bedside there to support him and said to the mom, you know, does he like McDonald's? Bring him in a McDonald's. We need to get some calories on this kid. And th that answer surprised that young man. It surprised his mother. I mean, I was very early in my career, but it still surprised me. And what we now know, Chuck, is that calories are not just calories. And when it comes to preventing conditions like Crohn's disease, colitis, diverticular disease, colorectal cancer, et cetera, et cetera. Food is incredibly important. And when it comes to treating these conditions, food is incredibly important, offering significant protection against these conditions. And a whole food, plant-based diet, time and time again, ticks all the right boxes. So, that was the beginning of the journey for me. Um, you know, at that time, Chuck, I decided I wanted to work with patients with inflammatory bowel disease for the rest of my career. I set myself on the track to become a full-time uh, experienced attending gastroenterologist. And by the time I became the senior guy whose name is on the front of the chart, who has the ultimate responsibility for helping my patient to get the best possible outcome, 
I made sure that I was ready to give my patients evidence-based answers to that question, what about food? And that's what's led to transforming my medical practice, uh, transforming my approach to medicine. And I guess ultimately it's what led me to write this book and get this information out there in an easy to understand way. You know, the irony is not lost on me that a lot of you guys should have listened to your gut in that situation. Listen to your gut. Listen to that. Listen to your gut in that situation, because I don't think even even the kid and his mom, you know, and, and you so young in your medical career, like you don't need to have that like big doctorate and, and, and a ton of experience to know like, well, wait a minute, McDonald's probably not the healthiest option here. And that brings us to our first question. As a matter of fact, it's one from Sherry and she's wondering what actually happens to your gut when you do go through that drive through and you do eat that Big Mac and fries from McDonald's. Well, look, we've known that these foods are not good for you for a long time, okay? Every dietary guideline in the world suggests avoiding going for a drive through McDonald's. But if we talk about the gut microbiome specifically, which is a control center for human biology and gut health, if we feed our gut microbes a Big Mac meal with the fries and the cheese and the milkshake and everything, what's happening? So most of that food will be absorbed by your small intestine. And you get all that saturated fat and the salt and all the other stuff in there that's going to harm your health in various ways. The stuff that gets left over, the stuff that doesn't get absorbed, we call the residue. And that probably counts for 10% of what you've consumed. This is the stuff that makes it to the large bowel. It gets through the entire small intestine where most of the nutrient absorption uh, occurs. And it arrives in the large bowel or the colon. Now, the colon is the home of your human gut microbiome, 100 trillion microbes, 10 times more cells and 100 times more genetic material than the rest of your human body which is crucial to the development of a healthy GI tract immune system and has been described as a control center for human biology. The makeup and function of the microbiome depends very, very much on what food residue gets delivered to it three, four, five times a day. So if you are eating a diet or a meal that is predominantly made up of meat, particularly red meat or processed meat and animal fat, and is plant deficient, what your gut microbiome receives is animal protein, hardly any fiber. And it also gets a lot of bile acids, the bile that your body produces to emulsify all that fat so you can try and absorb it. Those bile acids are shot down into your large bowel and they meet the gut microbiome. The gut microbiome then starts to digest those uh, residues and starts to feast on them. And you're feeding bacteria that love to digest that sort of residue, and they then produce postbiotic chemicals, which impact on your health and your gut health. And when you have the, the Big Mac meal, you are feeding the microbes that boost your production of secondary bile acids, which are pro-inflammatory and directly linked to causing colorectal cancer. Hydrogen sulfide gas, that eggy gas that is directly toxic to the lining of your gut and has been implicated in causing ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. You are reducing the amount of short-chain fatty acids that your gut microbes produce, which is frankly a disaster because short-chain fatty acids are so crucial to maintaining the health of your gut lining and your overall health. And you're also, gut, um, Chuck, feeding the gut bacteria that enjoy processing the carnitine in the red meat and turning it into trimethylamine, which your liver subsequently turns into TMAO, which is a pro-inflammatory molecule, which contributes to your cardiovascular risk. So you are producing a gut microbial environment, which facilitates pro-inflammatory and carcinogenic effects of the gut microbiome, you are promoting barrier dysfunction, inflammation, DNA damage, genotoxicity. By contrast, if you skip the McDonald's and you have a healthy whole food plant-based meal, you have a bean burger and you're having sweet potato and leafy greens, you are 
generating a gut microbial environment which inhibits inflammation and is anti-carcinogenic and promotes healthy cell metabolism and pr uh, promotes a healthy gut microbiome and is uh, a, a recipe for better mucosal health and better gut defenses against whatever challenges your gut and your gut microbiome have to face every day. Ooh, boy, school is in session today. Oh, my goodness. You just, man, that was like some gut health 301. Forget 101. I mean, that that 301. is of course, my friend. Oh, boy. Uh, all right. So uh, we, we talked about uh, the bad stuff with the fast food. You kind of shed some light on this. But now let's let's do a palate cleanser. All right. Let's let's okay. go ahead and reverse that. We have somebody who wrote in now wanting to know if you had to just list off a few of your must have foods when it comes to gut health. What would they be? Well, genuinely, I tend to look at the big picture, Chuck. And if you are building your plate from fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes, you are not going to go wrong. They, there are no superfoods. We have the super plate, okay, the power plate. And that's my approach. If you are eating a plant-based diet versus a meat-containing diet, we've seen this research published last year. Um, Angelus et al., if anyone wants to look it up, diet influences the function of the human intestinal microbiome. Plant-based eaters, vegans and vegetarians, produce more short-chain fatty acids, which protect the intestinal barrier, regulate our immune system, control our appetite, control our blood sugar, produce more butyrate, which prevents the growth of cancer cells, less secondary bile acids, less TMAO, greater diversity. Rather than focusing on, you know, one single food, I would say it's the big picture, man. It's all about diversity and abundance. You mentioned cancer, and that segues nicely to our next question. We have somebody who wrote in and said, unfortunately, cancer does run in my family, but if I eat a plant-based diet, how much lower is my risk of getting it? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, cancer, digestive cancer, specifically um, colorectal cancer or bowel cancer is something that's very close to my heart, both as a clinician and as a family member. I've had two family members affected by this condition. Now, colorectal cancer is incredibly common, um, unfortunately affecting about one in 15 men and one in 18 women here in the UK, similar stats for the US. And we know, Chuck, that among U.S. citizens, if you look at the Seventh-day Adventists, right, these are people who place a great emphasis on healthy living, not smoking, avoiding alcohol, exercise, community, etc., but also tend to eat a plant-based diet. Even the Adventists who consume animal products consume very little, right? Um, maybe 17 to 18 kilos of meat per year compared to the U.S. average of over 100 kilos of meat per year. And about one in eight Adventists are completely plant-based. So they're a great population to look at. And among the Seventh-day Adventists, they are about 30 to 35% less likely to get colorectal cancer. Among the Seventh-day Adventists who don't eat meat at all, they're about 36% less likely to get colorectal cancer. And if we go to other countries, if we leave the US, and if we go to, for example, rural South Africa, where people are eating a high fiber and com almost completely plant-based diet with, you know, 60, 70 grams of fiber per day, very little saturated fat at all, getting 70% of their calories from whole carbohydrates. We find the colorectal cancer is almost on heard of. There was a nice study that we've spoken about before on the podcast here, um, a paper called Fat, Fiber, and Cancer Risk in African-Americans and Rural Africans. If the person who put in that question is interested in cancer risk, they should read that paper. The first thing they'll notice is that 50% of the American volunteers in that study already had precancerous bowel polyps, whereas none of the rural Africans who took part in the study had precancerous bowel polyps. That's the first takeaway. The second takeaway is that when the Americans adopted a high-fiber, low-fat, plant-fueled, uh, rural African-style diet, their personal and individual risk of colorectal cancer shot down in just two weeks. 
Okay, man, the man that's promising. That is that's really promising. promising. Food matters. Food really, really matters. This is why, as a gastroenterologist, I talk to every single patient about food. I mean, I still use all the usual medications and the, the diagnostic tests, etc. But as a doctor, I firmly believe that if we're not talking about food, we're leaving a whole bunch of tools in the toolbox. No question about it. Let's transition over to ulcers right now. That's something that you and I really haven't had an opportunity to talk to all that uh, talk about all that much here on the show. We have a question from Johannes. Uh, they are wondering how do you heal stomach ulcers by eating a plant based diet? Is that possible? Well, we could prevent them. That's for sure. Um, we saw a really interesting study published here in the UK just a few weeks ago. Okay, um, this is out of Oxford. Um, the Oxford Biobank. So the Oxford Biobank is one of these wonderful public health studies, one of these great cohort studies where they are following hundreds of thousands of people for a long time, kind of like the Harvard at uh, the um, Nurses Health Study and, you know, the Adventist Health Studies. OK, so they have they reported these findings, Chuck, half a million UK adults followed for 10 years. And what they were looking at was the top 25 diseases that result in hospitalization. So they were looking at things like uh, type 2 diabetes, obesity, heart disease, diverticular disease, but also duodenitis, duodenal ulcers, and gastritis. So top 25 conditions. And then they looked at people's dietary intake, specifically red meat, processed meat, and poultry. The first takeaway from that study, 25 of the most common conditions, chronic health conditions, in 24 out of 25 conditions, eating meat either had zero health benefit or increased your risk. Zero health benefit or increased your risk, which I think puts serious health questions over anyone who advocates meat and poultry as part of a healthy diet, right? But for me, the gut health angle on that paper was that they looked at conditions like gallstones, uh, duodenitis, and gastritis, and even consuming modest amounts of poultry per day, say 90 grams of chicken per day, which is like a small chicken breast per day, increased one's risk of having gastritis, gastric ulcer, duodenitis, duodenal ulcers by over 56%. And the researchers who reported that uh, pointed out that the poultry farms, the poultry system, is a great source of H. pylori, helicobacter pylori, a particular gut microbe that lives in the lower part of the stomach once it gets into your system. And once it's there, it uh, damages your gut defenses and is the main driver of duodenal and gastric ulcers. So people in the UK who do not consume poultry are far less likely to get these things in the first place. Now, I haven't seen any studies demonstrating that you can completely heal these ulcers or eradicate H. pylori simply by changing your diet. My advice at that point would be to engage with your gastroenterologist. And even if they know nothing about the benefits of a healthy diet, they will help you to heal that ulcer and get rid of H. pylori if that's your problem. They will also review your medications if you're on things like aspirin or ketoprofen or any of these medications that ask you to stop them. And once you're done with all that, and once your ulcer is healed, I want you to move for the healthiest possible approach to food. Well, you talk a lot about uh, chicken there. And when people are transitioning over to a plant-based diet, a lot of times they're still craving meat. So we have somebody who wrote in on Instagram wondering, what can they do to help stop these cravings? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there's a lot you can do. Well, the first thing I would suggest is get on to Google, okay? And type in, you don't even need to buy my book, Chuck, or anybody's book. Get onto Google and type in healthy vegan recipe. I did this earlier today. I got 9.3 million hits, I think. Was it 900 million hits? So there are so many amazing healthy vegan recipes out there that can help you to scratch that itch. There are so many meat alternatives ready now on the market, Chuck. As you know, in the UK last year, 25% of new products launched in the supermarkets were plant-based. So these kind of substitutes like the plant-based bacon, the plant-based burgers, etc., these can be used for people 
who have been so used to those textures and flavors for the first 10, 20, 30, 40, or 50 years of their life. And if they're missing them, those can be a kind of a useful gateway to get you through to a completely plant-based diet. And, you know, they're not perfect. Some of them have a lot of salt in them. Some of them have a lot of saturated fat added to them. So check the label. You want something that's low in salt, something that's low in fat, something that's as close to possible as unprocessed, like a bean burger is a great idea. But yeah, I, I mean, I've no problem with people enjoying those foods. We didn't use any in the cookbook. There's none of those foods are used in the book. But in the back of the book, I, I put, have a QA and a and I say, well, why haven't you included any plant-based meats? And that's the reason. I don't think they're health foods, but they're certainly healthier than red meat, bacon, and sausages. You know, I will bet you in more than a handful of those recipes, they call for nutritional yeast. And we have somebody wondering whether or not nutritional yeast is bad if you have Crohn's disease. Yes, we use nutch in a couple of recipes. It's great, right? It gives you that little cheesy flavor. It's a good source of protein. It's usually fortified with vitamin B12. So yeah, nutch has got a lot going for it. But there does seem to be a concern around nutritional yeast and Crohn's disease. So individuals who have Crohn's disease, we can pick up an antibody in their bloodstream, um, ASCA, anti-saccharomyces antibody. And when their disease is flaring, that antibody level goes up. And that antibody seems to be an antibody directed against nutritional yeast. Um, nutritional yeast, as you know, is the same uh, yeast that is used in brewing. It's the same yeast that's made in making breads. It's just a deactivated form of that presented in another, in another way that you can use uh, uh, in your kitchen. So some specialists recommend avoiding nutritional yeast if you have Crohn's disease not because nutritional yeast gave you Crohn's disease in the first place, and not because yeast in general gave you Crohn's disease in the first place, but simply because in individuals with Crohn's disease who have sections of their gut lining that has been degraded, where the gut mucosal defenses are not functioning properly, it may be that the abnormal exposure of your immune system to that particular yeast is triggering an immune response. The science on this isn't definitive though, Chuck. Um, it's not a 100%, that's for sure, but there certainly seems to be something there. And I agree with Dr. Gregor, who suggests if you do have Crohn's disease, that maybe you want to avoid adding nutritional yeast to your, to your recipes. Nutrition is a huge component when it comes to ulcer stress, also known to cause ulcers. We have Ivan writing in wondering whether or not it's normal to get bloated uh, when you are stressed. Ivan, your gut can do pretty much anything when you're stressed, my friend. In the book, I talk about the gut-brain connection or the gut-brain microbiome connection, and it is real. It is absolutely real. I had this conversation with a patient at my clinic about an hour and a half ago. Think about it, Ivan. If you have completely normal gut health, you are a person who is blessed with having completely normal digestive health, and then you get some bad news. You learn that a family member has become unwell, or you get an unexpected bill, or you witness a car accident. What happens? It's really, really normal to feel nauseous, to lose your appetite. If it's extremely stressful, maybe you would vomit or have diarrhea. Maybe you'd become constipated for a few days. You might go out to have a meal with your friend the next day and you don't eat any food. And your friend says, hey, how come you're not eating? And you say, oh, I had some bad news about my uncle yesterday. So I, I just don't feel hungry. And your friend understands. They get it because this is normal. The gut-brain connection is real. So yes, Ivan, if you are personally stressed, that can definitely reduce your gut motility. It can reduce those motor complexes that move everything along the conveyor belt from your top to your bottom, allowing things to ferment excessively or more than usual. And fermentation, which is a good thing, it's a good thing for your health, but excess fermentation can generate excess gas and excess fluid and bloating. So yes, for sure. That's, that's a, that's a very well-recognized phenomenon.
Let's take a look at uh, another effect here of uh, loss of appetite. Andrea writes in, says, uh, been eating a plant-based diet and managed to lose some weight, but there are days when I have no appetite at all. Is that normal? Well, people's appetites can be very, very variable for sure. And, you know, we, we have this idea that everybody needs to eat three square meals a day, right? There's even this myth that skipping breakfast is bad for you, which isn't true. Okay, so everybody has their own normal digestive pattern. And there may be days where we just don't feel like eating so much. I mean, if you are underweight, then that can certainly be an issue. Being underweight, Chuck, as you know, can be pretty damaging to your health, too. So in those cases, if you are underweight and your appetite is reduced, on certain days. On those days, maybe we'll give you permission to have those more energy-dense foods like the avocado and the nut butters and the seeds, etc. And of course, Chuck, I've got to say, if you have noticed an abnormal reduction in your appetite, which is different to anything you've experienced before, it's always worth checking in with your family doctor. Get a physical, get some basic blood tests just to make sure everything's okay. And by and large, if somebody is not very hungry, hasn't been hungry that day, should they push through and try to eat a little bit of something anyway? Well, in terms of our gut health and our gut microbial health, intermittent periods of having less food seem to be beneficial. That's not by any means um, a recommendation for intermittent fasting. The way I view it, Chuck, is humans already have a period of fasting built into their day. If you don't eat after the sun goes down, and you don't eat when you're asleep, and you don't eat until you have your breakfast in the morning, you're probably naturally going to have an eight to 10 hour fast in there. And that natural eight to 10 hour fast seems to suit our gut health and our gut microbes just fine. So I don't know that you need to push yourself to eat food on a day where you don't feel like eating. Again, unless you happen to be someone who, due to medical reasons or a medical condition, happens to be at danger of being underweight, in which case, yes, Think about food, start to imagine a tasty meal, and sit down and have some energy-dense food. Let's talk about the debate between sugar and fat. Somebody wrote in wondering, which is the bigger detriment to gut health? Is it the sugar or is it the fat? Oh, do I have to join one team? Is it one of these things? (laughs) Am I team sugar or team fat? Okay. Um, Well, neither are health foods, okay? Neither purified sugar or um, saturated fat and cholesterol are healthy things to be eating, uh, you know. Um, so we want to try and keep those things to a minimum. But if we are just going to focus on gut health and gut microbial health, it's going to be the fat. Because as you know, Chuck, one of the problems with eating purified sugar is that your body absorbs it like that. It goes straight into your small bowel. It pretty much gets absorbed straight away. Your blood sugars go up. You get insulin. You get an overshoot. You get a, a sugar crash later in the day, and you feel hungry even though you don't need to eat. Never, never mind mention all the pro-inflammatory effects that these purified sugars have within our bloodstream. But if we're talking about the gut microbiome, that purified sugar never gets there, Chuck. It never gets to meet the gut microbiome because it's absorbed in the small bowel gets in there, does all that damage, but it never gets to the large belt, doesn't meet the gut microbiome. Whereas the fat, when we eat, you know, we talked about the uh, McDonald's takeaway there earlier. Um, When that fat gets down to the gut microbiome, it arrives in the, what it does is it promotes the growth of unhealthy bacteria. um, And it also um, promotes the secretion of excess bile, leading to the formation of secondary bile acids, which is a genuine risk in terms of increasing one's risk of colorectal cancer. So if I have to choose a team, I'm going to choose team sugar, but I'm still not recommending you have a bunch of processed sugar. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, okay. So if you're not going to be eating the refined sugar, a lot mm. of these healthy recipes call for dates. And we have somebody who wrote in on Instagram wondering whether eating dates regularly was bad for the gut. No, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, if you think about a date, a lot of people assume a date is like an artificially dried fruit, like a dried apricot, a dried apricot, et cetera. But um, a date is a fruit in its natural state. It's unprocessed. Um, you're getting it pretty much like it fell off the tree, right? Um, so dates are a great way to sweeten your foods um, in a healthy way because you're also getting all the fiber and the phytonutrients that come with that date. So you're not getting that big sugar spike. And 
uh, in contrast to the donut or the other simple sugars that you might choose to consume instead, by consuming a date, you are also feeding your gut microbes fiber upon which they thrive. And not only that, by including dates in your diet as a, you know, if you're someone who's never had dates before, it's a great way to increase your, your plant diversity. And as you know, um, the more plants we have in our diet, the more the greater the diversity of plants in our diet, the more diverse and functional our gut microbiome becomes. So yes, I'm a big fan of dates. I'm not saying I that's all I eat every day, but I, I might have a date or two, um, you know, several days a week. They're they're delicious. Oh, I'm good for a couple of dates a day. I I'm a big fan of the Medjool yeah, dates. Medjool dates. Oh, oh, they're so good. Now you're talking. They're yeah, so yeah, those good. are so good. Yeah, my 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 kids love them, man. We we get the little cartons, and yeah, they're so good. And what's not to love? Speaking of kids, we have someone who's 11 years old. I don't know if they're playing hooky or just cutting class <laughs> or what the deal is, but they're watching today. They say that they are eating a plant-based diet. Wanted to make sure that that is okay. Yeah, well, class is in session, Chuck. We are now in school. This is awesome. Yes, look, um, if you're watching with the adult in your life, please reassure them um, that a healthy plant-based diet has been endorsed as a healthy option by the American Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, by the British Dietetic Association, by the American Medical Association, by the American Cancer Society, the American Heart Association, the World Health Organization, and the United Nations, and the Lancet Medical Journal, one of the world's leading medical journals, as a really healthy way to eat, not just in middle age or old age, but at every age and every stage, whether you're a child, a, a teen, a, a you know, a grown-up, if you're in university or whatever, this is a really healthy way to eat throughout your life. I'm just going to go ahead and throw the exam room podcast stamp of approval on eating a, a plant-based diet at any age as well. For what that's worth, I'm just going to go ahead and add that to that list that you rattled yeah, off. Yeah, and absolutely. And look, Chuck, like everybody else, um, you know, our plant-based kids need to be getting their B12. So my kids take a, um, a vegan multivit each day. So they need to be getting that, that, that B12. Um, you may also wish to give your plant-based kid an omega-3 supplement. Um, I know you've spoken to the wonderful Dean Anisha Shurzai previously. That seems to be really important for neurological development in young children. And I would also say, Chuck, that when we are looking at our little kids who are growing and need all that energy, um, it's a little bit different to the adult situation where our kids can have more of those healthy plant-based oils that you find in nut butter and nuts and things like that because they're going to need them. They're going to need them to grow. Let's go ahead and grab a couple of more before we close up the doctor's mailbag today. Uh, we have a question here. So often we hear about plant-based diets opening things up for people because of the fiber, but we have somebody who wrote in and wanted to know, is it possible to get constipated if you eat a plant-based diet? I sometimes see, well, first of all, is it possible to get constipated despite eating a plant-based diet? Of course, there are a lot of other um, inputs to our gut health and our gut motility. Um, there are certain diseases that reduce gut motility. There are certain medications like opiate painkillers and antispasmodics that might be prescribed for any reason um, that can reduce our gut motility. As we alluded to earlier with, I think it was Ivan's question, uh, personal stress can reduce your gastrointestinal motility. For Particularly for females, if they've had obstetric difficulties in the past, if they have pelvic floor problems, then effective defecation can become a problem. And a review with a good pelvic physiotherapist can be invaluable. Um, adequate or ideal seating position when one is emptying one's bowel is incredibly important. Humans are not designed, Chuck, to defecate in a sitting upright position on an armchair. We are designed to defecate in a squatting position. So my number one tip beyond eating a healthy whole food plant-based diet for awesome defecation is to put a footstool in front of your toilet and put both of your feet on that footstool when you are using the potty. And by making sure that your knees are a little bit drawn up towards your tummy and leaning a little bit forward, you can mimic that squatting position for more effective defecation. 
that is your instant tip to improve your digestive health today. But yes, it is possible to become constipated despite eating a high fiber diet. I hope those tips help. And it's always worth asking for a referral to a GI or a pelvic physiotherapist if that's applicable. All right. So I have never told this story, but I used to oh, live with go. a woman who like when she went to the bathroom, uh, she told us that she would actually get up stand on the toilet and then squat over it. And that's how she did her business, literally standing or squatting on the toilet. It was, my mind was blown when she said this, I could not stop laughing. You know, that is potentially hazardous. Okay. If no there's kidding. a little bit of a, a slippy surface there in your bathroom, you can end up in some serious trouble. Okay. There's a lot of porcelain, a lot of white tiles around, but she was on to something, Chuck. I mean, if you look at our primate cousins, like the great apes, that's how they defecate. There, you know, there's a lot to be said for the squatty potty. I mean, there's parts of the world where squatting to defecate is still the norm. Um, at some point in Victorian England, they invented a toilet that looks like an armchair, basically, or you know, so you sit up straight like a gentleman and do your business and pretend you're not doing your business and read the newspaper. Well, really, we should be in a squatting position to do that business. And yeah, just putting that little footstool in front of your um, toilet is, is look, there you go. That's a, my number one uh, poop hack for today. Man, I love this show. As advanced of topics as we talk about on here, as scientific as we can get at times, there are still times when it just brings out the 10-year-old boy in me because this <laughs> I just love this so much. All right, uh, a couple of quick ones, really quick as we uh, wrap things up. Uh, is vegan butter okay to eat? I'm sure that this goes back to the fat that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, it's a little bit like we talked earlier about using um, plant-based meat alternatives. Is it healthier? Yes, probably. Um, when you look at those vegan butters, you want to have a look at the ingredient list, Chuck, because what you'll often find is that they're just made from unhealthy oils, which have been put through a process to make them behave like butter or spread. So personally, I would rather have some homemade pesto or some homemade um, or, or even store-bought hummus on my bread. I try to avoid those um, artificial butter products because for me, you know, there's not a lot between them and actual butter in terms of health benefits. All right. Final question here. Let's, uh, let's go a little bit more advanced here. We have somebody who's looking for help with ulcerative colitis. They want to know what is the time frame for seeing improvements in ulcerative colitis after adopting a plant-based diet? Well, let me finish by telling you a story from my clinic. May I? By all means. So two weeks ago, I had a follow-up consultation with a young woman with ulcerative colitis, that, that same condition, a form of inflammatory bowel disease. Now, I first met her two years ago. She's in her early 30s. She's in the middle of her first pregnancy. It's a really important time in her life. Things are not going well. She's developed gestational diabetes. So as you know, during pregnancy, underlying insulin resistance can be revealed by the hormonal changes in weight gain. So she was now having to inject herself with insulin twice a day and prick her fingers several times a day to get that little blood drop to check her blood sugars. In addition to that, the ulcerative colitis that she'd been diagnosed with about a year previously was raging. She was having to visit the bathroom 10 or 15 times per day. She was afraid to eat. She'd already been started on steroid medications by her GP. And those steroid medications were helping with the inflammation in her gut, but they were making the blood sugars more difficult to control. So she was in a real mess, Chuck. We talked about putting her on a biologic drug, an immune suppressive drug, which we tend to try and avoid using in pregnancy unless we're in a difficult situation because we want our mom to be as healthy as possible so she can have as healthy a possible outcome from her pregnancy. So she asked me, just like that young man 18 years ago, what about food? Is there anything I can do with food? And we agreed a two-week grace period where she would try and move towards more from a standard Western diet, more towards a healthy whole food plant-based diet. Now, she went away from that clinic, Chuck, and she was one of these people who just jumped right in. 
She had nothing to lose and she had a lot to gain. So she didn't mess around. She just went whole food plant-based. She got some good cookbooks and off she went. She, she came back to clinic two weeks later and she told me she was so happy that she could almost cry. Her bowel habit was nearly back to normal, more normal than it had been in years. We ended up not increasing her medications. In fact, we managed to reduce the medications and she completed that pregnancy very successfully. So then she disappears for a while. She's seeing the specialist nurses. She's not at my clinic for a little while, which I kind of lost track of her, which sometimes happens with patients when they're doing well. I caught up with her at clinic two weeks ago and I said, hey, I haven't seen you for a while. I hope that means things are going well. And she goes, things are going really well. She was still thriving on a healthy, high fiber, whole food, plant-based diet. She had had no further flares of her inflammatory bowel disease, despite being on very low doses of mesalazine, which is like a basic medication. Not only that, Chuck, she was in the final stages of her second pregnancy, and she hadn't had any GI problems during this pregnancy. And the news got better because she'd previously had gestational diabetes. During this pregnancy, her obstetricians told her to keep a really close eye on the blood sugars. And they gave her the glucometer and she was doing the finger pricks to monitor her blood sugars. And she was going to a clinic every week to make to find, to you know, detect when she would need to go on insulin again. The type 2 diabetes, the uh, gestational diabetes that had complicated her first pregnancy did not recur during her second pregnancy. Her blood sugars remained perfectly normal. She had healthier weight gain during her second pregnancy. And this would never have happened if she hadn't have asked me, what about food? And if we hadn't talked about the benefits of a whole food plant-based diet. Man, if that doesn't bring your career full circle from being that young pup dealing with the 19-year-old all those years ago to that woman two weeks ago, that is a heck of a story, my friend. And I will tell you something, you know, we hit on health, we hit on humor, and we hit on inspiration. My friend, what we have today, Dr. Desmond, is the trifecta of all exam room live. So thank you so very much for being here, man. This is this has just been a real treat. And if we didn't get to your question today, have no fear. We will save it and get you an answer on an upcoming episode. We will do our best to do so. Now, at the top of the show, I said that we would be giving away three copies of Dr. Desmond's new book, The Plant-Based Diet Revolution. It hits store shelves and Amazon here in the States on the 18th. But you can enter to win your copy right now. And all you need to do is head over to the Physicians Committee's Instagram page, at Physicians Committee. Head over there and look for the post that has Dr. Desmond's face on it and the copy of this book. And all you need to do, super, super easy, Dr. Desmond, all they need to do is leave a comment with their favorite plant-based meal. That's it. And we will be choosing three three exam roomies at random from those who leave their favorite plant-based meals. And we will be sending you a copy of the plant-based diet revolution. And so the final question, Dr. Desmond, obviously with that on the show today is what is your favorite plant-based meal? Oh, that's a really, really good question. My favorite plant-based meal, it's probably going to be oats. I know everybody says that, right, Chuck? It's probably going to be oats. Um, This week, I've been making a little uh, simple flatbread each morning for my breakfast. So a little bit of a break from the oats. So it's just made with uh, whole grain flour and water. Just make a really simple flatbread dough. And I've been having that like with half with hummus, half with mashed banana and walnuts. So that's my favorite right now. But it changes. It changes week to week. Can I say coffee? Is that okay? That's a constant for me. I'm going to say coffee. Hey, man. Coffee, oats, and flatbreads. It's your plant-based meal. That is your favorite. There's no right or wrong answer. That's the beauty of it. So now you know Dr. Desmond's and we want to know yours. Head over to at Physicians Committee on Instagram. Let us know what your favorite plant-based meal is and you will be entered to win. Yeah, I'll pop over there too and uh, join in the fun. Yeah, but you're not eligible to win. You wrote the book. Yeah, okay. Okay. (laughs) 
And you can find a link to that Instagram post in the episode notes so you can enter to win a copy of the book. Remember, you have to get your response in by May 10th, 2021 at 5 p.m. Eastern. All you need to do is click that link and comment under the post on Instagram. Let us know what your favorite plant-based meal is. And then also mark your calendars and join us every Wednesday on Facebook and YouTube for the exam room live. That is your best opportunity to ask our experts like Dr. Desmond your questions. You can also tweet me your questions or send it to me on Instagram ahead of time at Chuck Carroll WLC. Just make sure when you send that in, you use the hashtag exam room live. And Dr. Desmond, by the way, he will be one of the 30 speakers presenting the latest fact and evidence-based nutrition science at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine this July. That's coming up July 15th through the 17th. And here are just a few of the presentations from this year's event. We have Dr. Tim Key presenting the health of vegetarians and vegans. He's going to be combing through findings from the Epic Oxford and other studies in the UK. And then we have another presenter talking about the long-term health outcomes on medical expenditures of vegetarians. Now, how about that? Long-term health outcomes and medical expenditures of vegetarians. I haven't seen the presentation, but that leads me to believe that we're going to have a cost analysis of your medical bills if you eat a plant-based diet versus the standard Western diet. How do they compare? We're going to find that out. We have another study on the health benefits that come with dog ownership. So not necessarily nutrition, but certainly an interesting take there overall. And then our very own Dr. Hanna Kaliova, she will be presenting on ways you can optimize your diet to boost your metabolism. So all of that coming up, nearly three dozen experts in the world of health and nutrition will be presenting at the conference this year. And there are 22 credits available for doctors and nurses and dietitians and other medical professionals. But you don't have to be one of those people to join us. If you are just a fan of nutrition, you want to take charge of your own health, we would love for you to be there as well. And if you're a medical student or a Food for Life instructor, there is a discount available. And all you need to do to reserve your spot today is head over to pcrm.org slash ICNM. That's pcrm.org slash ICNM and save July 15th through the 17th for this year's International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine. And we would love to see you there. And my final question for you today, how would you like to help us save a life? The easiest way you can do that is to help us get this potentially life-saving information to those who need it the most. And you can help us do that by subscribing to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. And when you subscribe, please also leave a five-star rating. Because every new subscription and five-star rating helps to get just a little bit more attention on this show. It boosts us just a little bit more in the rankings. And the higher we climb, the easier it becomes for those who need this information the most to find it. And I want to thank you so much for that in advance. And for today, that's going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to the incredible gastroenterologist and now author, Dr. Alan Desmond for joining us. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs>